Well, good morning again. I'm gonna, I want to do a little exercise just to honor the dads in the room. Uh, so if you are a father, if you would stand up, play a little game here. I'm not going to throw footballs at you, but if, if you've been a dad for fewer than like five years, so your oldest child is five or younger, okay, don't think about your own age here, guys. You think about the age of your children, okay, so mark your oldest child. Five years or younger, go ahead and have a seat. Okay, if your oldest child is 10 years or younger, go ahead and have a seat. Ask your, yeah, ask if you need to. You got, good. You got it? Okay. F- 15 years or younger, have a seat. You got a good group here. 20 years or younger. 25 years or younger. Jump to 35. 35 years or younger. All right. 40 years or younger. 45? If you have kids that are 50 or older, stay standing. How about 55? Any? Three guys, okay. So, Paul, how old is your oldest? 62? How How old? 56, so he's got you. 59, so Paul... Thank you, job. 62, and you guys, thank you. Just want to honor you guys, you men, especially who've been in it for the long haul. Encourages the rest of us to, to keep on keeping on with our kids. So praise God for you, fathers. What does it mean to worship? What does it mean to worship God? If you remember the story from John chapter 4, and be in your Bibles in Matthew 9, but the story in John chapter 4 is a favorite of ours, of anybody that, that loves the Gospels and, and the life of Jesus, where he meets a woman at, at a well in Samaria, and he talks with her in the heat of the day, asks her for some water, and they get in this conversation, and the conversation begins to turn to really uncomfortable subjects like her sin. And she deflects it and avoids the conversation about that and changes the subject to worship. And, and Jesus goes along with that. He doesn't say, no, 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 we're going to talk about this right now and get everything out on the table. He, he runs with it, and she basically asks him, where's the right place to worship? Where should we worship? Should we, should we go to Jerusalem and worship, or can we worship on this mountain? And Jesus' response to her is, is profound, and he says... There is coming a time when neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem will you worship, but the true worshipers, the the kind of worshipers that the Father desires are those who worship him in spirit and in truth. What is true worship? And even this morning we have to answer this question because Here we are without worship leaders. Can we worship on a Sunday morning without music leaders? Melissa does an amazing job, and so do all all who serve in that way. But can we worship? What is worship? Is it coming to church on Sunday morning? Is it making sure we read our Bibles every day? Is Is it singing? Is it prayer? What is it, and how do we worship? True worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. And it was interesting, as Melissa and I were talking on Friday about her not being here and trying to figure out what to do, it just dawned on me, the passage this morning is Jesus reminding us what true worship is. Even though it may not seem that way, it's a story about a tax collector, and if I recall correctly, didn't you work for the IRS or something? Yeah. 
Yeah, so we got an IRS guy up here if you guys want to talk about tax collectors. Sorry, didn't mean to call you out. We'll have an escort for you on the way out as you, as you leave. He's retired, though, so okay. Sorry about that. Matthew 9, 9, as Jesus was walking along, passing on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose, and he followed him. Now, in ancient Israel, um, I think everybody's hated the tax man since probably taxes started, but in ancient Israel, tax collectors were actually working for the occupying forces. So in Palestine at the time, it was the Roman Empire who was occupying uh, that land, ancient Israel. And these occupying forces, like the Romans, would regularly, systematically tax conquered citizens. And they did that. They taxed because they had to pay for the bureaucracy, right? They had to pay for their empire. Specifically, they had to pay for their military. They had to pay people like centurions to oversee soldiers who were also paid by taxes. So, so you can imagine being a conquered people and having to pay taxes and what kind of a slap in the face would that, that would be. Because basically you're paying an empire to oppress you. Of course, in order to get this money, the empire of Rome needed people to collect it. And that's where tax collectors came in. In a town like Capernaum, which was a kind of a smaller rural town, but a city and an economic center on its own where goods and services would come through, Matthew likely as a tax collector would have been a toll collector. He probably would have had a booth, a tax booth like we find in this story, somewhere near the shore of the, of the Lake of Galilee and people like fishermen would have to come through and pay tolls on their harvests to the Roman government. So you can imagine how men like James and John and Andrew and Peter would have felt about a tax collector who regularly took from their profits. Tax collectors were usually Jews themselves, but they were Jewish entrepreneurs, and they would actually have to lobby for their position. So somebody like Matthew would have had to lobby with King Herod, who oversaw the region of Galilee, would have had to lobby with him, and the privilege of being a tax collector would have gone to the highest bidder. Okay? Those who were willing to cheat the most, take the most off the top so that they could pay Herod the most, got the job. So to put it bluntly, tax collectors were those who were willing to sell out their people in order to get ahead. Today they might be, and I've kind of thought, okay, who would they be in our society today? And the first thing that came to mind was telemarketers. Spammers. Scammers, fisher, like, you know, like those phishing emails and those kind of things, people who are trying to rip you off for some reason, um, used car salesmen, I don't know, uh, personal injury attorneys, and, and if you're one of these people here, yeah, don't take offense at this, politicians, maybe, you can maybe think of your own example of who these would be in our own society, but, but overarching, they were generally despised. They were viewed as collaborators with the enemy. They were socially treated as the lowest of the low. They weren't welcome into polite society. And really, if they didn't have military protection, if they didn't have Roman soldiers who were protecting them, you can imagine a lynch mob coming after them easily. So they were sinners, tax collectors and sinners in their, in their context, in their culture. So you would assume 
in this, and this, if you've never read the Jesus story before and, and you read about a tax collector sitting there, the first thing that would probably come into your mind, here's this good religious teacher, this rabbi Jesus who's doing these amazing things, teaching the kingdom of God, talking about God's law. You would assume that Jesus would come in and kind of take a John the Baptist approach to the tax collector and maybe set up across the street from the tax booth and have his followers make picket signs and, and maybe do a protest, a peaceful protest, of course, against the empire of Rome and its oppression. He would, he would call Matthew out on his sin. He would take him to task with a bullhorn and stand for righteousness and morality. Maybe he would, he would organize the mobs into a resistance rally. Or, or, or encourage these fishermen to defy the imperial mandate and stop paying their tolls on their fishing harvests. That's what you would think this rabbi, this conservative, strong rabbi would do, but instead what Jesus does is he actually goes after one of these sinners and he calls them into discipleship. You can imagine a crowd watching this and going, like, shouldn't he be yelling at Matthew instead of asking him to come with him? And, and embracing him and welcoming him into his entourage. You can imagine the shock that not only the crowds, but his fellow disciples would have had. In the book of Mark and in Luke, when we find this story, we we find Mark and Luke calling this man Levi. They don't call him Matthew. It's, it's curious that the author of this gospel, who we believe was this actual character, didn't even refer to himself as Levi. He called himself Matthew. And, and like Peter, he probably had a nickname. So he had a, a name of Levi and a name of Matthew. Maybe one was his business name and, and one was his other name. But like, like Peter, there was a wordplay in his actual name. So Peter, the name means rock, and the name Simon means kind of a little rock, and, and Peter's more, or rock, Peter's more of a big rock, and so there's this play on words when Jesus names Peter. The same goes here in this passage. If you had the Greek language in front of you, you'd, you'd be able to see this play on words. The name Matthew, which is Matthaios, is very similar to the Greek word for disciple, which is mathetes. Matthaios, mathetes. That word appears twice in verse 10 and verse 11 as it refers to the disciples. So as you're reading along, you're reading that language, Matthias, Mathetes, Mathetes. And then in verse 13, Jesus gives a command to the Pharisees and he says, go and learn. That verb, learn, that command is the same word, Mathete. Go and learn what this means. And so there's this, this play on words throughout this little story of the Matha, 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 Matha. Some, saying something about who Matthew saw himself to be, and in this alliterative rhythm of the story from beginning to end, really points to the, the meaning of the story, the big idea here to illustrate that anyone can be a disciple of Jesus. But this man who was the tax collector, he was the sinner, he was the bad guy, Jesus has called him and Matthew is saying, I am now a disciple. Even though he's a tax collector, he too responds to Jesus' call and immediately does what a disciple is supposed to do, follows Jesus. He becomes a student. He becomes a learner. The sellout, it's the collaborator, it's the sinner not the Pharisees, not the scribes, 
It's not the people who have it all together who, who give us the clear example of what it means to be a disciple. Matthew gives us the example of what it means to be a disciple. He gets up, leaves his tax booth, and follows Jesus. You see, when Jesus calls someone, he transforms them. When someone gets up and follows Jesus, Jesus transforms them. Matthew leaves his tax booth. The picture is he's leaving his old life behind. He's leaving it in the dust, and he's entering into a new life of following Jesus. When Jesus calls someone, he transforms them. But rarely, rarely are we changed. Rarely is someone like Matthew brought into following Jesus through arguments or shouting matches or posts on social media. He is brought to Jesus by a personal invite and changed by a Savior who sees him and calls him and and has him follow and then teaches him. When Jesus calls and we follow, our lives will no longer be the same. And Matthew's life was no longer the same. That's what he's saying here. I got up and called and that was it. I got up and followed and my life has never been the same. But here's how the story continues. He follows Jesus, but then it says that Jesus reclined at table in the house. Most likely this was Matthew's house. It says, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And if if you think about the story, here's a guy who never thought Jesus would even notice him, getting up and following Jesus. You can imagine his excitement now at this new teacher, this new life. And so it makes sense that he would invite the people he knows, the people who would actually respond to a dinner invitation, the tax collectors and sinners, and he invites them to his home to come and meet this new rabbi, a rabbi who doesn't despise him. A a, a rabbi who doesn't berate him or ignore him, but who actually chooses him, who actually calls him, and then who actually comes into his home. This isn't the place that that good Pharisees and good rabbis would go. You have to understand that these people that were coming to Matthew's feast were not church folk. They wouldn't step foot into a synagogue. They wouldn't go to the temple or even be Welcome there, and because of that, Jesus goes to them. They wanted to come and see this odd rabbi who would choose to spend time with them and eat with them and be their friend. And so it says, many of them came and reclined at table with him. Now, that, when it says reclined at table, that doesn't mean that everybody had a lazy boy and they were all reclining around the table. What it means is that there was a table low. They didn't have chairs, and so they would, they would recline, lay on their side and recline into the table and eat. And it was this very intimate picture of fellowship. And, and table fellowship was an important part of life in the ancient world and in ancient Israel. So to invite someone into your table to eat with you was an extension of hospitality. And to recline and to share a meal with someone was an intimate act of relationship. You share your table only with those with whom you have something in common. And so here's Jesus sharing a table, entering into relationship with tax collectors and sinners. Well, what did Jesus have in common with tax collectors and sinners? I'd say that it was because they were human. And they were made in the image of God. And he too, becoming a human, 
They were his creation, and he was coming to be with them once again. In Israel, table fellowship would have, would have been closely related to the purity laws. And so for Pharisees, who were really the, the serious rule keepers of the day, it was, it was unlawful, or at least it was unwise to eat with unclean people. Because unclean people would make you unclean. Their uncleanness would rub off on you, and then you wouldn't be able to go to the temple or offer sacrifices like you needed to be able to do. So to associate also in so intimate a manner with, with blatant sinners, well, well, that might rub off on you too. You spend too much time with them, and you too may, be, may begin to act like them and walk with them. Table fellowship brought with it then a serious case of, of Guilt by association. And so, to, to, for Jesus to eat with these sinners, the Pharisees may have feared that his association with them was condoning their sin. If you eat with them, if you go and spend time with them, if you love them, then you're condoning their sin. But deeper than this, I think they were concerned with what people thought of them being seen associated with disreputable, with disreputable people. You ever done that? Not done something or not talked to someone or not entered into a relation with someone because, hmm, what would so-and-so think if I were to do that? The modern-day example of this in my mind, this is a tough one, so bear with me, if you will. It's a hot-button topic right now, but whether or not a Christian should attend a same-sex wedding. Many of you have been invited to those kind of weddings because you have a loved one, maybe son or a daughter or a, or a friend or a coworker, or someone who's invited you to a wedding between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. And when this question arises, and I've had people come to me and ask me, what, I, what should I do? The fear from a Christian standpoint is being seen to, to be somehow condoning something that you don't believe to be right or, or something you don't even believe to be possible. So if I go there, they're going to think that I condone it, that I'm putting my blessing on it. Yet on the other side, there, there ought to be even a greater desire to maintain relationship. I want to maintain a relationship with my son or daughter. I don't want to burn bridges. And I think that this is what Jesus did. He wasn't condoning sins or he wasn't condoning their lifestyle. He wasn't saying, I I love that you collect taxes and cheat people. He wasn't proclaiming with this action that tax collecting and sinning were now acceptable. Rather, what he was doing was proclaiming in his actions that God is for these people, even when God's people have rejected them. My point here isn't to give you a definitive answer to a particular situation or what you should do in a given situation, but to challenge all of us to grapple with these kind of situations in which loving people might be costly for you. It might not look right. It might bring some raised eyebrows or critical words. The question is, how do we follow Jesus in coming alongside and embracing and eating with and showing mercy to and loving sinners? But when he heard it, verse 12, when he heard it, 
Jesus heard this critique from the Pharisees. Why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? He heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Jesus calls these tax collectors and sinners sick. He identifies them as the sick who need a physician. At the end of verse 13, he calls them sinners, which means that he doesn't ignore their desperate spiritual state. He doesn't ignore their need for repentance. Rather, as a physician of souls, he states that these are the very people he has come to serve. These are the very people that he has come to make well. These are the very people he's come to win forgiveness for. Those who abstain from the physician's services are the well who have no need of a physician. He calls them the the righteous in verse 13. Of course, this is a sarcastic statement on Jesus' behalf. Jesus is saying the Pharisees are like someone, these are mostly men, by the way, like someone who doesn't go to the doctor because they think they're invincible. I feel a twinge, but it's nothing. I'm not going to worry about it. Any of you guys like that? Don't like to go, okay. don't like to, go to the doctor. Not going to go. If they have bad news, I don't want to hear it anyway. And that's what he's saying. The Pharisees, you're like someone who doesn't go to the doctor because you don't think you need it. But what you don't know is that there's a cancer that is ravaging your body that's going to end up killing you. You can only be healed if you're willing to acknowledge that you're sick. And a physician can't help someone who can't accept their help. If you're already righteous in your own power, how can you accept God's righteousness? So Jesus quotes from the prophet Hosea. I keep saying Isaiah. It's Hosea, chapter 6, verse 6. This is the, this is the verse over there. From uh, the Old Testament, for I desired steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. See, the Pharisees depended on the ritual and purity laws. They depended on a certain form of worship to stay on good terms with God. They, they relied on their outward behavior for righteousness. So God, I'm right with God because of the things that I do, the hoops that I go through, because I've followed every single one of these laws and I've worshiped correctly. So their life of worship had boiled down to outward obedience and because they depended on their efforts, their strength, they'd become self-righteous. But, but God is saying in Hosea that true worship isn't wrapped up in sacrifices and burnt offerings. I don't desire those things. Those things I've given you, people, I've given you these sacrifices and offerings. I've given them to you as a tool to remove sin so that we can be in relationship. That's the point. Knowing me. And now Jesus has come along and claimed to be the very one who forgives sins and has authority on earth to forgive sins quite apart from this system. Now he quotes Hosea, and he's showing that a right relationship with God will exude, it will flow forth, it will overflow into a changed life, a life of steadfast love, the knowledge of God and of mercy. And Jesus is saying that that God doesn't just want your sacrifices or your good behavior or your, your conservative morality or your church attendance. God wants your heart. 
And a changed heart imitates Jesus' heart by then overflowing into mercy towards sinners. In other words, if you truly love God, it's not shown by how often you show up to church. But by how much you love and show mercy to sinners. The New Testament's just full of this. 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has seen. You get the connection there? If you love others, then you love God, and if you love God, you know God. In James chapter 2, James writes this, if you are really fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin. If you leave out the tax collectors and the sinners, if you, if you look down your nose at them, then you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So Jesus quotes Hosea and he says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy, if you look it up in the dictionary, is to show compassion or forgiveness to someone when it's within your power to punish them. To show forgiveness, to show grace, to to not hand out the punishment that is deserved. In the original Hebrew of Hosea 6, the word there is chesed, which which refers to covenant loyalty or, or loving kindness. And, and chesed is the, the kind of covenant faithful love that God shows to his people all the time, even when they're sinning against him. And it's the kind of love, which is an active, forgiving, getting your hands dirty kind of love to which God is calling us. And we are able, we're able somehow to reflect and show and act out that very kind of love that God shows to us sinners. Can you believe that God allows us to love like he loves? That he not only allows us, but he calls us into it to show that loving kindness and that mercy to people to whom we we wouldn't regularly even give a second thought. To Jesus, this is the essence of the law, loving God by loving others. One more thing it's, I think, important for us to grasp when Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and quotes the Old Testament to them, he says, go and learn what this means. Now, the Pharisees, the scribes, these guys were the teachers of the Bible. They're the ones who knew the Old Testament inside and out. They were, they were professional Bible teachers. They were experts in it. They knew the Bible. And Jesus is looking at them and saying, you missed it. You don't know the Bible. Go back and read your Bible. You have not interpreted Scripture correctly because if their understanding of life with God, their understanding of life with God, of righteousness, had become skewed. And this is a major warning for those of us who love and are serious about the Bible. It's difficult to imagine loving the Bible too much or standing up for truth or or moral rightness too much. 
And we look outside, you turn on the news, and we see a culture war raging around us. And we, we want to be people who boldly stand for truth. When, when, given, when given a choice between grace and truth, oftentimes we side with truth, a desire to be serious about God's word, a desire to be serious about his truth, a, a, a desire to honor his name in a culture that seems to be moving more and more away from him. But the Pharisees were serious Bible students. Siding with their understanding of the Bible didn't save them. In fact, it didn't even guarantee that they understood the Bible. And when we major in the Bible, but we neglect mercy and grace, that means loving those who don't deserve our love. And yes, I mean Kate Brown and Joe Biden and Donald Trump, and your coworker who drives you nuts, and your neighbor who has 14 cars parked in their front lawn, or your ex-husband, or whoever it might be who doesn't deserve your love. We major in the Bible and neglect mercy and grace towards those people, then we miss the heart of the Bible. To a life devoid of mercy for sinners, Jesus says this, you think you stand for truth, but you don't seem to know the truth. Go and study your Bible some more. When we get the scripture wrong, we get so much wrong. As we wrap this up for today, there are really two kinds of people in the room that this passage is addressing, and I'll let God tell you which one you are, and I'll let him tell me which one I am. So first of all, for the Pharisees in the room, In this story, the Pharisees who question and critique Jesus oppose his mercy. Hear that. They're opposing Jesus' mercy. And when we stand against mercy and love and grace towards sinners who don't deserve it, we might actually find ourselves opposing Jesus. If you think that God can't or won't forgive a liberal or a Democrat, or an abortionist, or a child molester, or a transgender individual, then you simply don't agree with Jesus. Because he loves them way more than we can ever imagine. Jesus has more trouble forgiving Pharisees who think they've got it together than he does tax collectors who know that they're sinners. Pharisees are those who won't let Jesus heal or forgive them because they don't think that they need it. And I think there's two kinds of Pharisees. There's the Pharisees that look, look down their nose at people who are obvious sinners, and then there's Pharisees in the room who look down their nose at the other Pharisees. At least I'm not like those people. Stuck up, can't forgive, so judgmental. I love that. I'm going to judge you with my judge. I'm going to judge your judgmentalness with my judgmentalness. Remember, we love God when we love others. So, for the Pharisees in the room, to whom does Jesus show mercy that you would never think twice about treating with mercy? That is the person Jesus is calling you to go and actively love. The best thing you can do in following Jesus is to follow the mercy. Find where. People are giving mercy where you would never consider it and go there. Find out where Jesus is loving people with grace and mercy 
and follow the mercy. That's the only, I feel like that's the only uh, correct, I'm, I'm going off script here, so I'm losing words. Prescription, that's the word I'm looking for. That's the only correct prescription for Phariseeism, to go and love, go and show mercy. Now, for the sinners in the room, this is everybody else. There's a temptation to read about Jesus' mercy and think, oh, Jesus loves me for who I am. So my lifestyle, my choices, my behavior, they don't matter to him. He welcomes me no matter what. Now, Jesus loves everyone, but Jesus is not saying, hey, everybody gets in no matter what. We've read, we have to read this episode in light of everything else we've heard from Jesus and seen in him, that discipleship is difficult. The demands are high, and a life of discipleship is marked by deep transformational heart change. Jesus can and will call anyone to follow him. That's the main point of this story, that Jesus calls anyone to follow him, but he will not leave you where you are. He will not leave you at your tax collector's booth. Today, we have an aversion to talking about sin. We, we want to be accepted in our sin. We want to be affirmed in our brokenness and, and find our identity in our rebellion. But Jesus' grace doesn't affirm our sin. It rescues us from sin. And you can't be rescued if you won't even name your sin. In fact, if it offends you to hear of your sin or to have your life called out for not lining up with God's desire for you, you may be more of a Pharisee than a tax collector. Jesus didn't leave Matthew in the tax collector's booth, and he won't leave you in your sin. He called Matthew into a difficult way of discipleship, and Matthew left the tax booth behind him. Jesus calls you to leave everything behind and to follow him. Jesus, I want you to hear this. Jesus loves you where you are. Fully, completely, every beautiful dad thing you heard on that video, he says to you, you're my child, I love you, I'm proud of you. There's nothing that you can do to make me love you more. There's nothing that you can do to make me love you less. Jesus loves you where you are, but Jesus loves you too much to leave you where you are. He's not hesitant to call you sick and to offer himself to you as a physician, not just a friend to recline at table with and eat, but as a healer who brings change. It was at a meal here that Jesus reveals then his fullness of grace and truth. And every week we come to a meal and we celebrate and remember a meal that Jesus gave to his disciples 2,000 years ago to remind them of his mercy and his grace and his love for them even while they were sinners. Jesus died for them. And it's by faith in his death, his burial, his resurrection that we too can be forgiven and changed and follow him. So when we come to the table, this communion table, we take of bread and juice and we remember by that his sacrifice given for us so that we might be forgiven, so that we might again know God. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never heard this gospel message, today's a day of salvation. Today's a day when you could meet Jesus by putting your faith in him for forgiveness. He loves you where you're at, and he calls you to come to his table and fellowship with him. 
So I invite you, those of you who put your faith in Christ, to come to the table and be reminded of his mercy and grace for you, but not to stay there, but to go out today and to take that mercy to a world who desperately needs him, to people who you would never think twice to show mercy to. Let's pray. Jesus, we're grateful for your mercy towards us. We're grateful that you have proven yourself to be gracious, good, and kind, and loving to poor, desperate, needy, broken, rebellious sinners like me, like us. Father, far be it from us to to hold up and grab hold of our sin and, and hold it as hard as we could and miss you. To sit at the tax collector's booth and and, and fall in love with the money and miss the Savior who's walking by calling us to follow him and have our lives changed forever. And so, Lord, if there are people in this room today who have, who have never looked to you, who've never noticed you calling their name, who've never known the mercy and grace that you have for them, would they know it today? that they would put their faith in you, that they would trust you, that they would believe, and that they would follow you from this day forward. God, for those of us who are Pharisees in the room, I pray broken hearts of mercy towards those who we don't think deserve it, no matter what anyone else thinks. God, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. We revel in it today. In your name we pray.